Well, I want to give a big shout out to Henry. That was a Rockwell moment if I'd ever seen one. Wasn't that great? Everybody, if anybody comes across that, that Rockwell painting, uh, or, or image, I should say, of that child getting baptized, anybody seen that? It is classic. And if you find it, buy it. I will buy it from you, I promise. Unless it's over a million dollars, but okay. <laughs> you know, um, what a great day to uh, even come to this text, because it is a day where we're celebrating uh, God creating a, a community for himself. I mean, baptism is, is, is not, in Scripture, an individualistic thing. It's not given to families to baptize their children. It's not given to an individual to baptize another individual. Uh, even myself, as a pastor, you would say, well, it would not be given to me to baptize my children or to baptize anyone, for that matter, outside of the, the ordinary means of grace that we call this community of faith. And so it's a, a, an interesting providence that we come to a passage that wants to really think about uh, this whole idea of community and to sort of get us into it. Um, maybe you've heard of the Google glasses, right? Google Vision, you know, the idea where you put it. Anybody have one of those things? I'd love to see them if you do. They kind of look, they sound neat. But, but, but Google released this video um, demonstrating the way the company might envision the world in the future with vision like this. The video is a shot of the perspective of an unnamed man walk, walking in his apartment, or waking in his apartment and venturing out into the streets of New York. All the while, thanks to his Google glasses, his vision is enhanced and interpreted, of course, by a computer uh, image of everything from the weather to directions to pretty much anything he wants to ask for, kind of a Siri in your glasses kind of, a, uh, of an experience, I guess you could say. And so he really could see anything. He has access to everyone and everything. He's talking on his, his cell, you know, on his uh, Bluetooth with his friend. And he's seeing the world through his glasses as he's walking there locally down the road. Well, New York Times columnist Ross Duthall later observes how such technology envisions a world with, quote, almost godlike access to information about the world around us. And that's pretty awesome, I must confess. I like having it right here, like you do. In any moment, boop, find out what I need to find out. Can't imagine, you know, what life could be without it now. And so I celebrate technology in many respects. If you know me very well, I like technology, I'm comfortable with it, and, and I just love it, you know, to be honest. But he raises a question. The question is, what is this doing to our community? More candidly, he says, the video almost captures the sense of isolation that coexists with our technological mastery. The man with the Google glasses, he observes, is at once connected to the world, but disconnected from the very neighborhood he's walking in, and more personally isolated than ever before. Dufrat concludes that instead of experiencing anything like communal togetherness, the 21st century humanity trends more towards, quote, inhabiting a comfortable, full-service cage. Never before have the prospects of networking and communication been so readily available. And yet, as all kinds of social studies demonstrate, really, this isn't hyperbole, never before have people been so lonely. I hear that all the time. I saw an article recently talking about 
uh, middle-aged men and how lonely they are. I hear it from pastors and how lonely they are. I hear it from you. It's, it's in that an irony that this technology allows us to, at, at, at any moment, speak to, talk with, type, text, whatever, people all over the globe. And yet there's this sense of isolation and loneliness. It's interesting and in, in, in a surprising way to many. Uh, with the rise of globalism of which this technology is giving us access, has also come recently, especially in the last, you know, 10 or so years, this movement back to localism. This movement to want to inhabit space. And space is becoming more meaningful. Space experienced with others in same space kind of thing. Person to person. Flesh on flesh. A community that knows one another and where their food comes from. A community that's livable because there's walking spaces. A, a community that's, that's now becoming infatuated with either the livable city or the, or the livable small village. Where micro-farming is beginning to grow because of the neighbor-to-neighbor interaction and exchange. It's... it's, it's I think, obvious, I think probably every one of you know what, what, what's, what I'm talking about. We are craving community in very significant ways. Well, within that context, we, we import ourselves into this first century text. And really, through this whole letter, Paul has been describing uh, what he has been experiencing, he's been celebrating even, what he's experienced from the community that he has with the Philippian church. And more than a kind of utilitarian uh, appreciation for the gifts that were brought to him in support of him as he was in prisons, we'll see, he waxes sacramentally about it. He he uses language in this text that, that wants us to see community as a sacrificial offering acceptable to God. And not just here, he does the same thing in Romans 12. The same words even that are going to be used, you'll see, to describe the work of Christ and his communion love for us on the cross is words that he'll describe about what it means to be in Christian community. And there we begin to see something very deep. We see that, that this unity which we are looking for is not a unity that we can technologically create. It's not a unity that can be fostered by some kind of achievement of humanity. In fact, it's not a return to Babel, wherein the genius of human ingenuity, seeking this incredible union of the nations by means of their great ziggurat project together. How we see that the very essence of that communion internationally starts with local communion. And the most local of all locals is a communion with Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ with God. Where there's no extent of space that separates us. Think about that so local that there's no extent of space 
that can be between us and God in the mystery of the sacramental union of every man, woman, and child in this room and with God by virtue of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. And so I want us to look at this passage, and again, we'll have to do it a little bit briefer, but, but let's look at it, and let's, let's see if we can um, just think out of the box a little bit about our lives. I'll even tell you now where this is going to go. We're going to go to what's called the three R's. We're going to go to this idea of really thinking deeper about what I learned from uh, John Perkins. Maybe some of you know him. He had a huge influ- uh, influence in my life when I was a young Christian. I uh, read all his books, and he led me to get involved actually in inner city work and through his influence and even involvement with his daughter. We, we established a Habitat for Humanity there in, in, in Athens where I was working at the time. And just, just this amazing experience of, of what it meant to have sort of this, this holistic re-community movement between black and white, rich and poor, etc. And he called it the three R's, relocation, which gets to the spatialness of true community. Reconciliation, which gets to the transcendent identity of unity in Christ that transcends all other identities and, and contexts. And of course, reallocation, where in flesh-to-flesh ways, community, for it to be full and holistic community is a, a community of, of mercy and involvement in sharing one another's gifts and resources one to another in a way that we become an organic one. And every time I talk about this stuff, <laughs> I find myself getting frustrated because I think maybe in all the ways I, I could describe of things we've talked about, this is where I think Western civilization has lost it. Um, the most, where we have really suffered under living in the soup of this individualistic kind of mentality. And uh, I just hope that God will, will prick us a little bit and make us think about this even in our church today. So let's pray and let's get into it. Father, thank you for this day and the celebration of community itself and the baptisms and the joinings as we even recommit ourselves to one another in vows. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to think about this more in a way that would change us in our life and our decisions. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Real briefly, just note a little bit of how Paul uh, brings us into a historical context. And I want to notice two things real, real, real specifically about the context that he lists here in this passage. The first is this relating to the, the, the communion of Philippi Church with Paul. You know, in the late 50s, uh, early 60s, Paul was in prison, uh, eight, uh, first century AD, you know, was in prison, and he received uh, this person-to-person visit from Epaphroditus. Right there, we're beginning to see, and, and it just absolutely had a huge impact in Paul, and he ex- expresses that impact in the way in which he starts off the letter and the way that he ends the letter. The impact that, that begins with this deep yearning that Paul says that he had for the communion that he wants to have with the Philippi church while he's in prison. How he longs to have that communion again, that community. And then here comes Epaphroditus, who who was sent by them as their proxy, if you will, as their representative, and 
And it evidently had a huge impact in Paul in chapter 2. He describes how the joy and the great sacrifice that Epaphroditus was willing to make, even to the point of risking his life, and evidently he came close to dying. And there was something that sacred about presence, about person-to-person presence. And the way in which that presence encouraged Paul and the way in which his bringing gifts from the community of saints encouraged Paul. And so this was his witness in chapter 1, verse 8, how he yearned with them with the affection of Jesus Christ. And back when we were there, I explained that affection was a kind of eros sort of love that he shared with those people, a hunger. And I really think we as, the first, as 21st century church could get in touch with that hunger, can't we? That loneliness that we just talked about. Such urging was at least uh, partially satisfied then with Epaphroditus. And how it was that they shared, he says in verse 14, in, the, in his trouble. They shared, that's Quinonia, in his trouble. And how uh, they did these amazing things in his life uh, to provide for him. But secondly, there's this communion with the other churches. He says in verse 15 particularly, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now, let me tell you a little story about that. You see, after about a year, after planting the church in Philippi and being there for over a year, Paul set out on another trip, the so-called third missionary journey. A major purpose of that, and I've always, and I think a lot of people have always thought, well, seems like such a beside-the-point kind of a purpose. Because his purpose of this third journey was focused on taking up a collection. And, you know, sure, it meant preaching. It meant forming, if you read Acts, forming communities of churches. It's interesting, by the way, that Acts, it's, it's not summarized in its various places by how many people get saved. It's always summarized by how many churches get planted. That's very different, isn't it? You know, to, to plant a church for Paul was to have Christ's presence accessible to that community. So much so that in Romans chapter 16, he defined his work as being accomplished in a certain region. And you think, whoa, you mean you've, you've done everything? You went, everybody got saved? Not at all. He could check it off when there was a healthy organized, mediatorial body of Christ in access to every community. And so the story goes that he's going around planting churches, but he's also making a very big point of taking up a collection. And that collection, we kind of embarrassingly talk about, I think, sometimes. You know, we're we're nervous. I'm nervous that, oh, here we go. I knew it would come eventually. You haven't been in this church a while. Well, it's been a long time, actually, because that's not what we do here. But, but here's this money question, you know, and we're a little bit cynical, understandably. Believe me, understandably. Um, but he wanted to take up a collection for money. And the purpose of this money was to support the church in Jerusalem. Now, this gets into some really deep stuff, um, this issue between the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, one of the accusations of the Judaizers against Paul was that his was a new religion. It was not a continuation of Judaism. It was not in continuity with the Old Testament. 
Paul, uh, there was even a heresy that went out uh, uh, after Paul's death, of course, Marcionism that, that, that declared that kind of, uh, of way of reading the Bible. And Paul was very adamant that that's not his theology, that's not the gospel. The gospel is in continuity with the Old Testament. Albeit, you must interpret the old now in light of the new, and what might seem sometimes atrocious to you in the old gets clarified when we begin to see how it works itself into the more true and more full meaning as fulfilled in Christ. So that's very crucial, and that's really what Paul was doing in his theological endeavors and his preaching. But he was also concerned that real continuity and is to have continuity with this community, this community of Jews who were being converted to Christ. He makes the argument in Romans uh, uh, you know, 9 that, that not all Israel is Israel, and that the, the true Israel are those who heard and received the, the promise of Moses, that there would be another likened unto himself that would, would have the power to baptize not just with with, uh, uh, that would circumcise not just with an outward sign, but with an inward spiritual reality. The circumcision of the heart, which is picked up by Jeremiah in, in anticipation of the messianic purpose. And he really, he, Paul preaches that. He makes it very clear that, that true Israel is Israel that is in Christ fulfilled. And therefore, with that continuity in mind, Paul takes up this collection because for him, community is not just uh, outward, is not just a sort of an abstract idea, but it's, it's this real word, I think, for community is the word participation. Uh, that's even cheap. Uh, it's koinonia, but it's, it's this idea that, that we partake of one another. That's, that's a better word, actually. Really, if you understood it, it's that we, in certain sense, partake of one another's life. Luther said we can eat and drink one another as response to the Lord's table. That's what it means to partake. And so Paul says, there are brothers, there are sisters, we are one. And, and it was a beautiful, powerful uh, image of, of Paul moving around uh, the, the ancient Near East, taking up this collection in order to support those who are poor, he makes that argument in a very grand fashion in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 8 and 9. But what's interesting there is he speaks of, he, he exhorts the Corinthians, you know, those who have too much won't have too much, those who have not enough will have enough because we partake of one another. And he explains how it is that those who we're giving this gift to, they share with us the, the very Old Testament law and, and the covenants, and, and through them we have come to Christ like, a, like being grafted into a tree, he says. Their contribution was great, the Jewish Christian church, that is. But they were very poor, outwardly. And so he makes the case in Corinthians that you need to, who was a very wealthy church, that you need to give sacrificially to this. He makes no apology for it. And to kind of put a little you know, spur in the saddle, if you will, he references those in Macedonia, the Philippian church. In language very similar to this, he says how this little church, so needy and persecuted and suffering in many ways, they didn't even have the means to give, but they gave greatly. 
he says in Corinthians. He repeats it here, if you noticed in the verse, how, how even though you couldn't give, you gave anyway. And so we see that there's a history here with Paul in this Philippian church. It's a very beautiful history. A history not only of, of Paul and the way he's seen the power of God work in this church, saving people, building a community, a community that was under persecution. Yes, a, per, a community, as we'll see, that, that the very source of that persecution was dividing the church, and so we had a concern for reconciliation but a church that also participated not only in relocation, as in people sharing and inhabiting space together in the partaking of one another's flesh, if you will, but a people who are not only being exhorted to reconcile with each other, but a people who were also famous for the way in which they reallocated their resources in order to share among the body of Christ. And so that's, that's the gist of the history. But let me now dig in a little deeper into the text. Notice uh, that our passage leaves no rega- uh, doubt regarding the importance and his appreciation then for this real-time community that Paul is experiencing and, and acknowledging here. And even as he reminds them, though, of the unique service that they have performed from the very beginning in contributing to his mission, as I've just described it, to spread this grace of gospel-centered community There's a twist. Did you notice it? I mean, two times he kind of says, thank you, but not really. Uh, He he says it, first of all, in verse 10, where he says, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you, man, this has meant everything to me, but but you know I'm really content whether you gave it to me or not. And remember, we talked about that two sermons ago. Uh, How he has been how he discovered contentment that transcends all experiences so that in a genuine sense, he genuine sense, he wanted to make it clear that, that on the one hand, this gift was incredibly important and impactful to him, but on the other hand, he didn't want to mislead them, especially given their troubles, into thinking that joy was, was and the joy that we can have and that lack of anxiety that he exhorted us to have is somehow circumstantial. Remember that a couple sermons ago? And so he kind of backs off, it's a, not backs off his thanksgiving, but says to Kenneth, but I'm particularly interested there, and that's what he does there in verse 11, how he's able to suffer all things for the sake of greater intimacy. But then you turn to verse 14, and let me read it, or actually 17, because he explains himself in a different way. He says, not that I seek the gift, you know, oh, I don't need it. You could impose that very cynical, term. here's Paul, you know, I don't need your help, I don't need your help. Well, that's, I don't think, close to what he's saying if you put this in context and what we're going to see. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then here it is, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours. Health, wealth, here we go. I'm really excited for it because you know, Bitter Bob, you're going to get a lot of money from this transaction. That's not what we're hearing, the car salesman. So what does he mean? What's going on? And then he says to this whole thing, according to the riches in glory. The riches in glory. What's he talking about? What kind of riches is he talking about? 
And then to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So just as in verse 11 he had introduced an important qualification about contentment, here in verses 17 and following he introduces this idea of a reward and how he is delighted by their giving because of the fruit it's going to produce in their lives. This first word literally is translated receive back or keep or hold. It's a commercial or banking term. In fact, there's three key verbs here, and all of them have a banking kind of history in the first century. This kind of a receiving and, and then this abounding, uh, a kind of used in a material sense to be sure. I am amply supplied. But what's going on here, even as he's recalling that they have not grown weary in well-doing, he quotes what he says over in Galatians as well here, but there's some transaction that, that, that then, in these banking economic terms, takes on a very deep spiritual, say, sacramental, partaking kind of language that fits perfectly, Roddy, with the focus of Christocentric intimacy that Paul's been talking about through this whole letter. There is something to their credit that's being given to them, a fruit uh, that is increasing to your credit, if I could put it in, the, in a literal terms, that are applied to spiritual realities. And that's where I want you to look at verse 15 and 17, where he, Paul describes it as an aroma of fragrance, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This language is rich in Old Testament cultic context language, which speaks of the temple and its communion with God. It's rich with this idea of of this outward thing that corresponds to an inward thing that makes communion holistic. Because as I've been saying, and I'm trying to introduce this idea, not only is is, uh, America, if you will, or the Western tendency to be individualistic, we're also extraordinarily materialistic. And I don't mean by that that we love money, though that, that may be true. What I mean by that is, is that we are a culture who, who tends to elevate uh, materiality and disconnect it from spirituality. And sacraments wants us to, to not do that, you see. I mean, sacraments wants us to understand that that as one person said, when you touch my body, you've touched my soul. Anyone who's been sexually abused would understand that on the horrific negative side. But anyone who has sexually experienced intimacy in a context of covenant and grace would also know what that means. But it's not just that. Anyone who knows that, that as you stand at a distance and talk, there's something very different that happens than when you hug. You know, it's interesting. I wasn't going to bring this up, actually, until later, but um, I just thought of something that happened yesterday. So I'm coming back from Atlanta, and I'm on the, um, in the plane. And uh, I was assigned to a seat there uh, next to this young girl. And she was, as it turns out, 19 years old, um, just an amazing person. And, uh, you know, I sat down, kind of tired, and actually was going to start working on the sermon um, but, uh, but she, she just very boldly, you know, and very confidently, you know, what, what brings you here or something like that? I don't know, somehow it got started. 
And I'm going to say to you that that was absolutely the most uh, satisfying conversation by far I have ever had in my life on a plane. I mean, it really was. I mean, we, we, it was just unbelievable. Um, uh, just two generations, two people who shared in some ways a history. We both had some, a drug history. We both had some other histories. Uh, and she's moved more in the Buddhist direction. Of course, I've moved more into the Christian direction. I actually came up with a cool line, though, for, you know, Buddhism is in Christianity. It's just Christianity is more than that. I just, boy, we talked about that. That was kind of a cool phrase because I really believe that. Um, they're not the same religion. You know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, but it is something we can applaud and affirm. There's much in Buddhism that, that I think we should be able to applaud and affirm as something deeply uh, true about Christianity. But, uh, so, so we're talking, and um, I, I just can't even put into words how she was very confident and bold, but very open about her life, and... and um, and we, uh, we were just doing reconciliation, and we were doing ministry. It was just unbelievable, talking about um, millennial versus, you know, uh, the, the generational differences and how they experience it. She was, she's come from a very difficult past and, and some real pro- issues going on in the family. And, but at the end, we, so, so it was so awkward. Have you all done this? So you, after this, so we've literally... It was, I mean, I'm telling you, the, the, the plane ride was about a 10-minute plane ride. That, I, it really felt like 10 minutes. We didn't stop. And it was just great. And great communion going on. And uh, so then we pull up, and all of a sudden, you know, you get back into your habit. You know, okay, get my bags ready, and she's getting her, you know, we're kind of going. And, um, and I talked to her about my daughter and, you know, how she, you know, we were, she was kind of connecting because she reminds me a lot of my daughter Anna in many ways. And, and so, uh, we, so we get up, and, you know, I just was telling her about daughter, and she said, you know, and she could tell she's really struggling with a little bit of acceptance from her parents. And, and she goes, well, I, I would give anything if my father said about me what you said about your daughter. And I said to her, I said, well, if you were my daughter, I would say that. And, and, um, and it was still, we still, of course, we hadn't touched or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, but it was just moving, and I realized there was something, we, we you know, she... I gave her my information and some books that she wanted. She's real into social justice and mercy, and I gave her some Lupton books and things like that. But um, so we're walking down and we're going outside, and um, you know she's going to meet her father, and I'm going to get my car. And you know we turn around. Well, it was really good to get to know you. It was now back into the type of the way you would experience it. And I put out my hand, you know, to shake her hand, and she just instantaneously said, no way, and then just gave me a big hug. And I'm trying to say something from that. These are two strangers that knew that something had happened there, spiritual. And it was incomplete until there was some touch. Very platonic, please. You know, I'm in the middle of the airport, don't think anything. I mean, just a very pop, 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 like, you know, you do your grandmama. But the point is, is that, 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 this passage, I'm trying to pull out of it, this is the language that Paul is using here. This communion with God that's so rich and powerful that it can't just be abstracted with God up there and we down here. That's what makes Christianity so powerful. That's exactly what I shared with her in some ways about why I chose Christianity over Buddhism. And, um, and very, very non-judgmental, very positive. You know, she told me her problems with Christianity. It was very positive. And so uh, 
Paul is here trying to remind you and me that our communion with Christ is incomplete apart from localism, radical localism, not the trendy kind that's pick and choose and, and still be global all the time in our trekking around the world, but the kind that really gets into the messiness of a local experience. And by local, I mean person to person. And that's what Paul's, that's the best way I know to explain what he's doing here with the sacramental language of the Old Testament, describing it as a thank offering. When they gave this gift, it was a thanks offering that has more impact than merely the outward person, but an inward person thing. Are you, you, you're, you're tracking, right? So with that being said, let me just talk about those three R's in closing. Stepping back, what, what's the take home, I guess? And to me, it really does start with this theological reflection. It's the reflection that Christian community begins by being united in Christ. I don't want to underestimate that. You can't have the intimacy with anyone that you can have with someone who's a Christian. I I didn't quite say it fully, did I? (laughs) I, it, It sounds a little bit harsh, but there is a communion that you can have with a Christian that you can't have with an unbeliever. Paul makes that point very clear in Corinthians about uniting ourselves to unbelievers uh, because there's a sense in which that kind of union, forming any kind of covenant relationship with an unbeliever, there's a union that's not as holistic and pure. There is something very radical here, that there's an essential aspect of the nature of God that is communal that we must partake of in order to have communion with one another. John, of course, 17 makes this point, reciting the prayer of of Christ, where he says, I and you and you and me, that they may all be one just as you and I, Father, are in me and I and you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christian unity is theologically or spiritually based. And by spiritually, I don't mean abstract. I mean real, substantive, without substance, if you will, content of, of life. Um given the name of God and the glory of God have been given to believers, this is itself constitutes an act of God's holy love in Jesus Christ. He gave us his name. Keep them in your name, he says. That's deep. As God is one, so those who bear the name and the impress of his character must necessarily be one. This thing about making your Christian identity first is not just, just I don't know, Light stuff. There's nothing that broke Paul's heart more and nothing that should break your heart more than to see the body of Christ divided. There's nothing worth gaining. No prize socially, Americanly, nationally, multinationally that you can possibly get that's more prize worthy than a church who partakes of one another in holy communion. In Christ, we pray often here for the peace and the purity of the church. Um, it is the first thing that Satan will want to take away. It will be the first sign that we're in trouble. It's just that important. 
It has to be worked on all the time. It's something that doesn't go. I confess, I had a, a really naive thought when I went into ministry now 30 years ago, and I thought, you know, I'm going to, when we started planting this church, we're going to build this church on a good foundation. We're going to really build it like an oak tree. Those of you in church planting know I use that analogy all the time. Oak tree, oak tree, no mushroom, no mushroom. It takes longer to do it right, but let's do it right. And that's true. But I think somewhere back where I thought that somewhere that day, it's just going to be a coast thing. You know, we're going to start coasting. I have discovered, not because of, I mean, we've been very blessed, really, we have. And I'm, I'm not, this isn't any kind of bad apple going on in, in our life right now. I'm, I'm not aware of it anyway. Probably there is. And I'll figure it out later. But the point is, is that, that, uh, that it just has to be retaught and retaught and retaught and retaught. It has to be reminded in every situation that comes and confronts us. It's a new situation that has new tra- challenges, new identity uh, politics, new identity, you know, justice, new identity, everything. And, and some of that starts to get into the church and all of a sudden there's a them and us. It's just pure Gentile and Jewism all over again. And you just got to keep working at it. So did Paul. And it's that important. But here, here's this quote that I, I used, put in your thing, and I want to quote it. You already read the Leslie Newbigin quote up there, but I'm going to read Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He has this incredible book called Life Together. And he, he says it this way, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this, whether it be a brief single encounter or an or the daily fellowship of years. Christian community is only this. How many times he's got to say that, right? We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means first that a Christian needs others because Christ, they need Christ. It means second that a Christian comes to others only through Christ. And it means third that in Christ Jesus we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity it is a grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community and Christian brethren. This brings me to that last thing that, that Paul said about how he wished this fruit for them. And what makes it very clear, the kind of fruit he's talking about, is he, did you notice how he ends? He talks about in glory. In glory. And what's he referring to? He's talking about the heaven, the kind of eternal communion that will be in continuity with our communion in heaven. Even as we share in that continuity with those who are in heaven now. It's, it's not, and, and ironically, it is materialistic too. It's holistic. We do believe, I'm going to go ahead and say it, we're a health, wealth, prosperity gospel here, okay? The difference is, this health, wealth, prosperity expectation clearly is not now. The suffering motif is by far the most significant motif of what we should expect for those who follow after Christ and his work of taking up the cross in this present age. We're now to follow Christ and to interpret most of our lives, quite frankly, and I do this in counseling as I know Kevin and others do, we interpret our lives in the cross right now. We're still in the wilderness, if you will. And they're still atoning, and, and not our atoning for our sins, but, but entering and discerning the body of Christ as we do today on the cross is the meaning of our lives. But Paul is referencing that this great fruit, this great prosperity, uh, this banking transaction, if you will, it's good. It's good. It's a good investment. Because this investment will hold true in heaven. There will be a resurrection from the dead. Remember the prize that he talked about? There will be a resurrection from the dead. 
I mean, that's it for Paul. That's the prize. There is a resurrection from the dead. It's funny because when we were talking about Buddhism yesterday in the plane, that's where I brought her. I said, you know, and, and she was really resonating with it. And um, just the idea, and she was bringing me some good things too, by the way, I was learning. Um, and uh, it was just interesting, though, that, that how important that is, and that's been lost as part of the gospel. We don't talk about that enough. We think it's somehow pie in the sky. But everywhere Paul went, he preached heaven and resurrection from dead. And we need to start preaching it again to our friends and saying, you know, we really believe in the resurrection from the dead, really. And everything that's in my heart and everything I'm yearning for and hoping for, it's going to happen. We believe that. And we have reason for believe it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? And I won't go into all that. So three R's, very quickly. Relocation. What's it going to take for community to be a full-out community? To share place and space with each other. There's an ebb and flow to our lives. You know, if you want to read about it in, in narrative form, read, of course, uh, Mystery and Manners by uh, uh, O'Connor and um, Flannery O'Connor. And just, there's this attempt, and she makes it very clear if you've read her, her intro, that, that she sees life sacramentally. And this idea that, that, uh, that for us to only participate in one another's life on a Sunday event is missing a lot of what Paul's point is here. Um, in other words, we've said sometimes we have to show up in each other's lives. And how are you going to do that today? I mean, there's a lot of things about relocating, you know, about this church that's together. And a lot of sacrifices I'm sure we're going to have to make to do it. Um, this community that's together, I mean, it... You know, we were talking, and she was talking about how our generation loves travel and experience, and, and yet they also love justice and mercy. And I was recognizing how uh, my generation has not been too high on justice and mercy, quite frankly. But, but we tend to, you know, be a little more local, at least originally. It's kind of gotten different now. But, um, and so we build things in local context and stuff. And so we were talking about, at least as a historian would say it, and I said, wouldn't it be neat to get our generations together? I mean, we, we need your, your, your generation's idealism. But for you to do what you're talking about doing, you're going to have to actually plant yourself in a, well, in, in a, in a, in a community <laughs> and get messy with that stuff, you know? And she was t- exhorting me. It was really fun. She was exhorting me, too, to get off my high horse and do some other things, too. So, so it's kind of fun, you know? And, and so, uh, but that's, I don't know if I'm communicating right, but I'm saying that we need to really rethink our lives, is what I'm saying, our travel schedules, to be blunt, uh, our temptation to not be loyal to a place. Um, this, is, this is part of what Paul's talking about here. This, this willingness to offer ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice one to another and, and to really to, to stick with each other and be loyal and, and present. Um, it's pretty hard to have this kind of relocation, spatial communion if we just aren't around. And so that's a lot of what Paul's, they, they made great sacrifices to be around Paul by sending Epaphroditus, didn't they? And that's what we need to do, you know, think about that. Some degree of intentionality and organization is going to have to be built into this in your lives. It will require that we slow down and resist the temptation always to be multitasking. I mean, when we're sitting at a dinner table with our friend, 
or our family to put the phone up, to be spatially present. It will require that we put away this technology. It will require that we become less global and more local, less travel and more going deep and sharing the presence of Christ in a living community of faith. That's what Johns Perkins was talking about. He, he made it a rule, and we've made it here, that if you're going to go in, into a community, you're going to, if your goal is to minister to a community, you've got to live in that community. That was his rule. You don't go down to the poor and visit on, on a blank day and give them a turkey. We've been very careful that if you're really going to participate, say, in the Hill Church, you're going to live there. And you're going to experience communion there. Because they've been very hurt by people who come and go. And it's been very evident in their transitions how much they long for that. And vice versa in our community. You know, I don't know if you know, but uh, we had a candidate here. I hadn't heard back from him yet, by the way. I know there, there's some other things going on. But um, uh, they were asking, how do we come up with a salary? And I said, it's really simple. The session decided that, what, that, that we want our pastors present in the life, in the lifestyle, sharing the real-time life of the community that they're ministering to. And so we'll just give them, an, it's basically simple. How much do you need to live in a median way in this community? <laughs> so you can live among them. And that's it. It's a million dollars, I guess we'd have to come up with it, but it's, uh, that's what we're trying to do. Um, secondly, re- uh, reconciliation. Um, we've talked about that before, but remember back in chapter 2 um, how it was that, that they were to put aside all rivalry, put aside all um, discord that was related to their various class identities and their various ethnic identities, and etc., and, and really serve one another and their identities. Remember all that? Well, I, I, we don't have the time, but, but really, you know, the Philippian idea is that reconciliation is going to need to be intentional all the time. You know, some people might think, well, you know, reconciliation is something that we do when something's gone wrong. Well, actually, we were born wrong. We were born with original sin and our disunity with God by virtue of our original sin of rejecting him and separating ourselves from him. And so it's, it's something that starts from day one that we're always having to work on reconciliation. Reconciliation is going to take, you know, all the things that I would reference in Colossians chapter, uh, what, two or three. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, listening to one another. There was reconciliation going yesterday on that plane, even though it wasn't needed in a personal way. But in a real way, I heard things that I have never heard before. And she did too, because we listened to each other and got to know each other. Um, we're going to need to really work at that and make it a high priority in our marriages and in our relationships with our children and our relationships with one another. And, and, and it's going to always take, though, a sacrifice of self and our rights to do it. That's Paul's point. And thirdly, uh, reallocation. I think we've talked about it, but, you know, when we started the Mercy Fund, um, there was a big vision and it's not even close to being realized, but there was, a, there was an idea here that, that if we could really sacramentalize this idea of communion of saints that's both inward and outward, as our confession describes, how it would look like the Acts 2 church, all things bringing together. And I, I'm, I probably have not been bringing this to us as much as I need to, but um, they're just, it, it, we, there's just such a beautiful vision to this. That, that we could all aspire to step by step. This idea of let's, let's go in concentric circles as we see in the church of, of Paul's day, uh, taking care of your neighbor who's here 
and then extending that to our Christian neighbor throughout the world. And having this, and, and this mercy concept um, of, of really partaking of each other's lives, um, I would envision a day when we have millions of dollars in this fund. Maybe that's the next big drive, but just millions of dollars in a way that we could really say there's not going to be poverty here, not in the Christian church of Jesus Christ in New Haven and then beyond. You know, and by poverty, I don't, you know, I'm not saying, they, you know, just, just, but that idea of those who have too much don't have too much, et cetera, et cetera, trusting that that's true here and finding ways for that to work. It's, it's amazing. A little micro-enterprise there, a little housing co-op there, a little, little store, community store there. It's amazing how relatively cheap it would be to do that in our church right now. Relatively cheap. And you can pray for ESEF as we're going to have that meeting this week, and I'm going to share that vision with you guys who come. I hope you'll come. Got to go. Let's pray for peace and purity, but more important, let's pray that God will awaken us to this communion that we celebrate today in baptism. Amen.